visitor. We are in the Psalms for the summer, and we are in Psalm 38 today, and then we'll have three more, and then we end the summer series, and we will complete our study in the book of Revelation, chapters 19, 20, 21, 22, and then we'll go into a new series. Now, for those of you who have not been with us, the first 41 Psalms make up what is called Book 1 of Psalms. Psalms is divided into five different books. first 41 make up Book Number 1, and that's what we're trying to get through. And the key Psalm in Book Number 1 is Psalm Number 1. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. And in that Psalm, David tells you how you can be blessed. And uh, if you want you know, God to be with you and guide you and bless your endeavors, that's what you're to do. Just read Psalm 1. Well, now we're going to find out that he doesn't take his own advice. Here's a man who knew the truth, knew what to do, and he didn't live by his own rules. And you're going to see the consequences. This is, uh, in a sense, a heart-rending, a gut-wrenching psalm. Okay? David in this psalm is both physically and psychologically sick. And he's suffering both mentally and bodily because of his sin. This is the reason he's in the condition that he's in. And uh, he feels in this state that he's been abandoned by God. Now, has he been abandoned by God? No, but I think that he senses that he's abandoned by God. And so if you look at the superscription in the psalm, and all of our Bibles should have this, it should say, a psalm of David to bring to remembrance. And I think what David is doing in this psalm, he is trying to remind God of the covenant that he's made with his people. And ask God to remember that covenant and act on David's behalf that David's life may be spared. So he's calling God to remember it. I don't think he's remembering this himself, although he does. I'm sure he's written this years after the event. In other words, what he's describing here are things that happened to him probably several years before. Now he's recounting it. But the call to remembrance, to bring to remembrance, is saying that he was trying to get God to remember his covenant and spare his life. Because one thing we know about the Bible, when God remembers, he acts. So throughout the Bible, you'll see people in trouble, and they will remind God of the covenant that he made with Israel. On the basis that he remembers, he will act. And so David is asking God to act in his behalf. And this is a cry for help. And when you go through this, you'll see how heart-wrenching this is. So let's look at the outline. Here's how we're going to divide it. Verses 1 and 2, this is for those of you who like to divide the, the, the uh, Psalms. Verses 1 and 2, we're going to call this David's initial cry for help. David's initial cry for help. Okay. And then we're going to look at verses, the next verses, verses 3 through 10. And we're going to call this a description of his suffering. He tells us what he's going through, a description of his suffering. Okay. And then verses 11 through 20, we're going to see how others react to his suffering. He describes how his friends and his relatives and his, even his enemies respond to the suffering that he's going through, which is very interesting. 
And then verses 20 and 21, his final cry for help. Okay? So he has two cries for help. The initial cry for help in verses 1 and 2, and the final cry for help in the last two verses. So let's look at his initial cry for help. Look at verse 1. Here's what he says. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Now notice, he doesn't ask God to stop the punishment or to stop the discipline in his life because he knows he deserves it. So the, the, the plea is not, Lord, stop discipline me. What is it? Lord, discipline me, but don't make it so severe. Okay? Don't discipline me. Notice how he puts it here. Don't discipline me in your wrath, in your hot displeasure. You know, I disciplined my children, and there were different ways I disciplined them. Sometimes I disciplined them, and I said, look, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. <clears throat> and uh, I would, they needed to be taught a lesson, you know, and this was for their good. But other times, you know, they really got me mad. And when I disciplined them when I was mad, and I was hotly mad, then guess what? There was an extra spanking, and there was, you know, a lot more. And David simply is saying, God, I deserve what I get, but temper temper the discipline. And that's what he's asking for. So he knows he should be spanked, if you want to put it that way. Now look at the reason for his request. Look at verse 2. This is why he asked God to temper it. For your arrows pierce me deeply. And notice that arrows is plural. This isn't just one discipline. He's getting a whole bunch of things are happening to him that he's describing metaphorically as arrows. And he says they pierce me. And look how they pierce me. Hey, this is like a prick of the skin type of appearance. Hey, you stuck me with the pen. Ouch! Or is it like an arrow that goes deep into your skin? Now try to pull that arrow out. What's going to happen? You see, he's describing a punishment that's, uh, that hurts. Uh, that's deep. And then look what he says in verse 2. And your hand presses me down. So, here he has... An inward wound, something that pierces deep inside, not a literal arrow, but he's being cut to the quick. He may be talking simply about uh, the conviction that he's experiencing because of his sin and because of the punishment, or the guilt that he's experiencing. And then he says, you know, Lord, your hand is just pressing me down. He's got this terrible pressure on him. This weight is on his shoulder. It's a weight on his shoulder that is coming from a divine origin. It's God doing this. Uh, the, he's describing something that's happening inside, probably the guilt that he's experiencing, and this pressure that he's experiencing. And today we just simply call that depression. Uh, this is thrown David into a depression and he feels this weight on him and it's too much for him to handle so he's asking for some relief now I want you to notice something as we go through this section I want you to notice how he describes the psychological punishment that he's going through and how he describes the physical punishment that he's going through now if he describes these arrows hitting him deep inside being cut to the quick by right? talking about how 
he's convicted of his sin deep down inside, and how he's groaning inside, and how he's uh, experiencing guilt inside, and then this weight that's on him is depression. I'm going to call this a psychological punishment at this point. Okay. Now notice how he describes his punishment. Look in verse 3. Remember what I told you to notice. Here's what he said. There is no soundness in my flesh. This is what the punishment looks like. This is the result of his sin. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. So now we've gone from psychological to physical. Do you see that? One is an inner thing. One's a depression. One's a weight. That's psychological. But now look what he has. He says, flesh. Bones. What about his flesh? No soundness in my flesh. That means that uh, he has open wounds. Okay? That uh, his flesh is ulcerated. I know what that's like. I just had a case of sunburn. And my flesh got ulcerated. That was pretty painful. Not as bad as this one. Is as you will see. But this is a physical malady that he's describing here. Ulcerated flesh and bones. Ulcerated flesh is what you could see. Would you say that? That'd be on the outside. You can see that, those wounds on his body. But then look what he says. Bones. See that? Nor any health in my bones. That's what you can't see. You can't see a person's bones. But guess what? He's aching. His bones ache. You ever been in a situation where your bones ache? You know what that's like when it's just a little bit. Hey, Brian's been through chemotherapy. He'll know what bones are. The ache. This is uh, deep within his bones. Maybe his marrow is uh, you know, even drying up. We don't know. He can't sleep at night because of the pain. So what's happening is that the physical toll is taking... Uh, the physical problems are taking a toll on his body. Now why is that? Look what he says in verse 3. Because of your anger, you see that? Because of your anger, and look at the end of verse 3. Because, what? Of my sin. Notice the cause and effect. This is happening because of my sin. And what's the effect? You're punishing me. Cause and effect here. So this is a punishment from God. So we saw in verse 2, psychological. Verse 3, we see physical. Now look what he says in verse 4. For my iniquities, look at this, my iniquities, this is the reason why this is all happening, have gone over my head. This is David's fault that all this is happening. It's his iniquity. What does it mean, gone over my head? This, my sin is just sort of taken over. It's swept over me like a wave coming over your body at shore, knocking you down. He's a person who's like he's drowning. See? And then he says in verse 4, like a heavy Burden. Do you see that? Like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. This talks about the gravity of the situation. He's overwhelmed. So what's he describing? If something's too heavy for me, he's talking about a psychological condition. Okay. Notice. When Judas denied Jesus, the guilt <clears throat> was too overwhelming. He just went out and he took his life. What he's talking about. It's like this sin over, overwhelming him, and he's overwhelmed by the guilt. Just heavy. He can't stand it anymore. Peter denies Jesus. He goes out and he has to weep. This is what happens when you sin. You should be feeling 
guilty and you should have this heavy burden on you. This is a psychological issue right here. Look at verse 5. We go back to the physical. So we had psychological, physical, psychological, now physical. My wounds are foul and festering. Look at that. What does that mean? It means my skin is diseased. <clears throat> These wounds are infected. One translation says they stink. In other words, his flesh is rotting away. My wounds are foul and festering. Why? Why, David? Why, why are you having this physical problem? Because of my foolishness. Hey, blessed is the man that walks. Not in the way of the ungodly, but he's decided to do something else. And it's his sin and it's his iniquity and his foolishness that's bringing this about. That's his physical problem. Wounds. Festering wounds. Look at verse 6. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. Notice how we're going to go back to the psychological again. You see this? Physical, psychological, physical, psychological. I am bowed down greatly. It's like the weight of the world's on his shoulders. You can't even stand up straight. I go mourning all day long. A mourning over what? Mourning over his condition, mourning over his sin, mourning over that he let God down, mourning over that he's let his people down. Look at verse 7. Go back to the physical again. My loins are full of inflammation, and there is no soundness in my flesh. Somebody said this may be uh, describing, in biblical terms, some sexually transmitted disease. That's the case, and it may indeed be the case, based on another verse in this passage, is that David evidently has had several adulterous relationships, and the one with Bathsheba is not by itself. And he's gotten some disease and he has inflammation in his loins, it says. So there you see a physical. Now look at verse 8. I am feeble and severely broken. Uh, well, it's not his bones that are broken. He's broken. <laughs> I am feeble. I can't think straight. I, my great-grandfather is sort of becoming feeble. What does that mean? Well, you know, he has to walk like this and he's, he's bent over and he doesn't think clearly. I groan, I groan because of, uh, look at this, the turmoil, the chaos, the war that's going on in my heart. So, we see a description of his condition. Now, look at verse 9. He makes an admission. He says this, Lord, all my desire is before you. Now what does he mean? He doesn't say, Lord, I desire you. No, he's desired to satisfy himself. He doesn't say, Lord, I desire you. He said, all my desire, all my yearning, uh, all that's within me, within me, you know about. It's not hidden from you. You've seen it. Hey, you think you can sin and get away with it? God sees it. And when you're crying out deep within your soul, God hears it. All is before Him. See, that's what He's saying. Look at verse 9. We know that's what He means at the end of verse 9. And my sign is not hidden from you. So, desire is something's inward. God sees inside of you. And sign, <sighs> something that's outward. 
God sees that. So, he's moaning from the pain, he's moaning for relief, that's his desire, and God knows about it, and David knows that God knows about it. So, uh, David is starting to come to his senses, and this is sort of a turning point in the psalm. Look what he says this. This is great in verse 10. My heart pants. You know what that means? My heart's racing. Palpitations. I'm having panic attacks. Exactly what this means. That's what happens when a person who's usually a godly person does bad things. They do something a little crooked. You know, they try to get away with something. Steal this, do that, lie here, watch this commit this sin, and guess what? It's God's way of getting your attention. He says his heart is palpitating. He's having panic attacks in verse 10. Look what else he has in verse 10. My strength fails me. Yeah, that happens. You get weak, fatigued, feel tired all the time. No energy. Look at the end of verse 10. As for the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. You know what that means? There's no light in his eyes. You look at him, he's in a total state of depression without hope. That's what it means. It doesn't mean you can't see, obviously. It doesn't mean the light doesn't strike his pupil. Of course it does. He means that all hope has gone out of me. I'm in a total state of deep depression. This is a picture of a child of God who succumbs to sin and the results of it. You've seen pastors in situations like this. Christian leaders who've ended up like this. Your life is on the trash heap of society now. At one time were famous. I can mention many of them. And you know, it happens because they decide they want to sin. They're lured by the sin. And they commit the sin. And it's pleasurable. Get away with it. And guess what? Before long, it literally takes over their life and they're addicted and they can't get out of it. And this is the result. So he's describing his condition here. Now, I want you to notice in verse 11, this next section starts the reaction of his friends, or the reaction of others, I should say, to his suffering. When you get in a situation like this, what happens? Well, he's going to tell you what happened to him. Look at verse 11. My loved ones, and this is where it very gets interesting. He's not talking about his loved ones like my relatives. Literally, it's my lovers. Plural, my lovers. And the New King James puts loved ones, and you'll see that's not right. My lovers and my friends stand aloof from my plague. And my relatives stand afar off. So, guess what? He's in this condition, and guess what happens? His relatives, his friends, and his lovers treat him like he's got the plague. Treat him like he's got leprosy. Like if they get too close to him, they're going to catch it. Maybe they will. Maybe they're not so stupid. But the point is, is that he's deserted. Deserted by everyone that means or meant anything to him. Lovers, friends, and relatives. This is what we ought to call 
the aloneness of sin. The aloneness of sin. See, it affects your relationships with other people. And the irony is, in this condition, when David really needs a friend, I mean, you really don't need a friend too badly when everything's going right, you know, you need friends, but I'm just saying, you know, you don't see your friends, everything's still going right. When you really need a friend, when everything's going bad, that's when he doesn't get a friend, and that's when your friends will abandon you, most of them. And they do. They abandon this man. They treat him like he's got the play. So now he turns, well, what about his enemies? How did they treat him when he was sick like this? Mentally and uh, physically. He says, those also who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction. Now he says, hey, let me tell you what my enemies did when I was sick. They followed the old political rule. The rule of thumb. When your enemy's down, kick him! Make sure he never gets up again. See, that's, isn't that what it says? I think that's what it says. <laughs> they seek to hurt my hurt and they speak of my destruction. They plan deception all day long. So they're going to try to keep him down. Now, that's exactly what happens when Christians fall. Did you ever notice it? When a Christian falls into sin and he's, and he's exposed or she's exposed, boy, the press comes out. All the enemies come out of the woodwork, and guess what they do? I'm going to tell you other story. And boy, they're going to keep you down. And so his enemies say, he's down, now we need to get him out. He's down, but he's still in power, he's still king. We need to get him out. So they're planning ways of getting him out of office. Removing him and his from his power. Look what he says in verse 13. This is very interesting, and at first you could mistake what it means. But, even though the enemies do that, I, like a deaf man, do not hear. And I, like a mute, do not open my mouth. Now, why doesn't he defend himself against his enemies? Well, one interpretation is that this is David's strategy. You know, never answer your enemies. Never answer your critics. <laughs> and that sounds pretty logical, but that's not the case. We know David has answered his critics many times in other Psalms, don't we? Uh, so I think that what this really means is that he doesn't have any moral uh, strength, uh, no power to answer his critics. He doesn't have power to answer his critics physically. They're coming at him. He doesn't, he, he's so weak he can't even think of how to answer his critics. Physically, he's feeble. You ever see a person who's on their deathbed and he says, now what should we do about this issue? And the person goes, what do you want to do? They're not in any position to be thinking about how to answer the critics. And he certainly doesn't have any moral right to answer his critics. They say, hey, he's done this, he's done that. What can he say? How can he answer? Because that's what he's done. They're right. They've got him. So, only thing, he, he can't talk his way out of it. He has no defense. In my opinion, that's what I think he's saying. So look what he says in verse 14. Thus I'm like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth 
There's no response. So what? guess what he does? He does the only thing that he can do. He turns to the only place where he can find help. He turns to the only one where he can find hope. Look what he says in verse 15. For in you, O Lord, I hope. You will hear. He says, I can't hear. I do not hear. I do not hear, verse 13 and 14. You will hear, O Lord, my God. So this is his only hope, that God will hear what his enemies are doing. He will see what his enemies are doing. He will respond. He will defend David. He will heal David. He will rescue David from his suffering and from his enemies. So David, in a sense, cries out, and he says, Lord, you're the one that's going to have to hear. Now remember, all this is brought on by his own sin. God didn't have any part in this. But God, David realizes that if he's going to get out of He's going to be healed. He's going to stop. The suffering's going to stop. He's going to stay in office. God's his only hope. God is going to have to act on his behalf. Look at verse 17. Verse 16. For I said, verse 16, Hear me, lest they rejoice over me. In other words, God, the only one I want to speak to is you. You hear me. And if God hears and God remembers, he'll act. You hear me, lest they rejoice over me. Lest when my foot slips, or one translation says halts, they will exalt themselves against me. So, what David sees is that he is tottering right now. He cannot defend himself. He's ready to slip. He's ready to fall. He's ready to die. He can't do anything. And so, what he does is he asks God to come to his rescue. He says, if I fall, and, I, and I, I'm tottering now, and if I go over and I fall, he said, they're going to exalt themselves against me. And that's going to be it. So, and look what he says in verse 17. He says, and I'm ready, to, I'm ready to fall. I don't think I can take this much longer. I don't think I can hold out much longer. And my sorrow, oh, my sorrow. Sorrow for what? Sorrow that he's being punished or sorrow for his sin? I think sorrow for his sin, and you'll see why. And my sorrow is continually before me. He confesses to God that he's sorry for his sin. This is confession. This, my sorrow is ever before me. Look at verse 18. For I will declare my iniquity. So he's going to confess his sin. I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. And so David is a broken man, physically, psychologically, and now spiritually. And he confesses that he's a sinner before God. He confesses that he needs God's help. He confesses that his life is over. And the scripture says, in fact, David says in Psalm 51, uh, the Lord uh, does not despise a broken and a contrite heart. So David comes with a broken and a contrite heart before the Lord. Uh, so he's ready to come clean. Finally. It's taken David to get to this point to start coming clean. Can you imagine that? this point to come clean. 
Why did he come to his senses beforehand? Ah, he was blinded, you see. His sin just overwhelmed him. He got hooked. And we've all seen the scene when a leader decides to come clean, haven't we? They come before the microphone. They stand before the cameras. Their spouse is next to them. And they admit what they did. They come clean. But usually it's too little too late. And they're finished. So before David comes clean publicly, guess who he comes clean to first? He comes clean to God. He says, I'm, I'm finished if you don't restore everything to me. Now watch this. Look at verse 19. It's very interesting. He says, but watch. This is sort of a contrast here. But my enemies are vigorous and are strong and those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. In other words, God, hurry up. Look, God, hurry up. Uh, my enemies are multiplying. People that used to be my friends are joining the enemy camp. I mean, I, the wave against me is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I'm going to be out of here, either through physical death or out of office. Hey, they're strong. they got power behind them. Hurry up and solve this problem. Now, I want you to notice the comparison there in verse 19. David is weak. Look, they're strong. You see that in verse 19? David is feeble. Look, they're vigorous. You see that? David is alone. They're multiplying. See the difference? David's weak, they're strong. David's feeble, they're vigorous. David stands alone, they're multiplying. He knows he has no hope whatsoever if God doesn't intervene. Those, verse 20, who also render evil for good... They are my adversaries. And now we see uh, how he describes his enemies. He describes his enemies and the enemies of God are those who render evil for good. Rendering evil for good. That's who he describes as, as, as his enemy. They are my adversaries because I follow what is good. Well, he's sinning, isn't he? And certainly that's not good, but when David's in office, guess what he usually does? He usually does what is right. And throughout all the Psalms, what have we discovered? The people who are wicked and do evil don't like David because he does what is right. He's not the kind of guy that takes bribes. He's not the kind of guy that plays favorites. And if they get in office, that's how they're going to operate. And they are against him because he is basically a good person. Now here's an example of a man who is good that has fallen into sin and is about to die and lose office. He's destroyed his life. But underneath all that sin, that crustacean of sin, there's a good person there. God can see. So David has his final plea. Verses 21 and 22. Here's what he says. Verse 21. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. David knows as long as God is on his side, 
His enemies don't have a chance. As long as God's not angry with him and his hot pleasure's not against him, uh, he knows that he can take on whatever the enemies toss his way. But God's going to have to do it. Don't forsake me. Look, David is alone, but guess who he hopes is with him? God. You see that? If God is with you, what? Who can be against you? So David has come to a census. He realizes this. Remember Jesus when he was hanging on the cross? He said, oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember that? I don't even think Jesus was forsaken. I think when the sin of the, sin of the world came upon Jesus, guess what? He felt forsaken. But did God forsake Jesus? No, he raised him from the dead. So what we have here is we have uh, David saying, oh God, don't forsake me. Now, it started off with God, don't punish me in your hot pleasure. Uh, David still is going to re- you know, have the results of his sin, but he doesn't want God to forsake him. He wants God to come to his aid. Look what he says in verse 22. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation, my deliverance. In other words, hurry it up. They're multiplying. They're getting stronger. I need your help right now. Don't delay. It will prove disastrous. Now, Okay, so that's the psalm. So let me ask you a question. On what basis does David expect God to hear him and deliver him? He's like a rotten bum. Why should God even hear him? On what basis does David expect God to hear and deliver him? On the basis of the covenant that God made with Israel. He knows that he can just get God to remember his commitment to his people that God will hear and God will answer his request. Now, another thing I want you to notice here is that I don't know anyone right now, I don't have any friends, that are in this condition that David was in. This is about as bad as you can get, isn't it? I mean, it's like he's taking his last breath. It shows you that no one's beyond hope. Guess what? After Psalm 38, what comes next? Oh, there's a Psalm 39. I guess he made it. No one's beyond hope, and you're not beyond hope, and I don't care what you're into. God can deliver you, but you have to be like David and come clean. Now, let me give you a third little thing. Even when we're forgiven, we have to live with the results of sin. There's a difference between forgiveness and the results of sin. Yes, we might not be punished eternally for sin, God forgives us, but there are temporary results and consequences of our sin. I remember reading a comic strip, strip of Pogo. Pogo comes to his father, and he says, Daddy, he tells about the sin he's committed. He says, Daddy, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. The daddy takes him outside, gives him a hammer and a nail. Tells him to gives him a board. He says, "Now drive those nails into the board." So he drives the nails into the board. He said, "There is your sins, it's like sin." He says, "Now take the nails out." And he takes the hammer and pulls the nail out, pulls the nail out, pulls the nail out, pulls the nail out. This one's hard. You have to go like this. Pulls them all out. And he says, "He says they're all gone, aren't they? It's like your sins." He says, "But Daddy, look at those ugly marks. They're still there." See, sin has results. It leaves scars. It leaves marks that affect your family. You can be forgiven, 
And God can forget your sins, but guess what? At least there's consequences that you're now going to have to work through. So a person has an adulterous relationship and they ask for forgiveness, guess what? He forgives. But there are consequences. There may have been a divorce as a result of that. That's a consequence. That's a result. Guess what? Can't, can't change the mark. It's still there. Forgiveness, yes. Freedom from guilt. The weight's lifted off your shoulder. But guess what? The mark's still there. Well, what do you do when you have a mark? Well, guess what? David will be a man who lives with the marks and the results of his sin. But he realizes that that's a mistake. And he doesn't now, he doesn't dwell on it. Oh, I wish I wouldn't have gone through that divorce. I wish I wouldn't have done that. Oh, no. He doesn't carry the guilt with him. He realizes he's responsible. But he gets on with his life. And that's why he had more songs. And his life has changed. He doesn't fall back into that same pattern. So, Psalm 38 is a great song for a Christian who through intention or lured by sin gets drawn in ruins a lifetime. A lifetime. He's not a young man when this is happening. He has ruined a lifetime in a sense. But he doesn't allow it to control his life for the rest of his life. He gets on and he continues to serve his king. And you need to get on with your life. So there's always hope for those of us who sin. As long as we come clean to God because he doesn't despise the broken and the contrite heart. Next week we'll hit Psalm 39. Lord, we thank you for your, your word. May this be a word of, of uh, comfort. And yet at the same time, may it sober us. Those of us who have toyed with doing things, may this sober us and see how far uh, a believer can fall. And for those of us, Lord, who have fallen, may this be a word of comfort. That there is forgiveness and there is restoration help each individual in this class to get on with their lives who may be in that situation. Oh Lord, we thank you for a scripture that gives us the truth and gives us hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.